Hi, I'm Armand Olia, and I'm the host of Last Call. This is a Tripod production. Have you ever thought about what makes particular people interesting to you? Why, of all the faces you see and voices you hear every day, these are the ones that stand out most. Well, pull up a seat and have a round with me, your host and temporary bartender, Armand Olia. Welcome to Last Call. Autism advocate, activist, and professor Dr. Temple Grandin once wrote, I don't want my thoughts to die with me. I want to have done something. I'm not interested in power or piles of money. I want to leave something behind. I want to make a positive contribution. Know that my life has meaning. I feel this quote from her autobiography is the perfect way to sum up my final original guest, a woman who, during my time at Drexel, not only made life much easier and fun, but also made and continues to make such a positive impact on the Drexel community. Dr. Amy Edwards is the director of the Drexel Autism Support Program, or DASP, which I mentioned briefly in my interview with Ariel Kamen back during the first season. DASP is a program targeted towards students on the autism spectrum, with the goal to better not only their academic standing, but also their social lives, working on fundamental skills that are necessary once leaving the comfort of your home. As its director, she is the gatekeeper to all the program entails, including its club NeuroDragons, the peer mentoring program, and their work with the A.J. Drexel Autism Institute. As a result, she played a vital role in my life from the minute she became the director, and after three years, I dare say she knows me pretty well. I knew that before I left Philadelphia, there was just one last thing with Dr. Edwards that I had to do. Interview her and have one final conversation. And so, four days before I left the city of Philadelphia, while she did some coloring... We sat in her office one final time over a decaf chai tea. To the interview. To the interview. How's the tea? Delicious, thank you. Yeah. So the first question I always ask any one of my guests is always the choice of drink. Now, this one was weirdly specific, but it was actually really, really cool to do. Uh, decaf chai tea with uh, honey and a Splenda. So... Why that choice of drink in particular? So I like chai tea because it's very, I find it relaxing. Decaf because I'm trying to stay away from caffeine. Splenda, trying to get away from Splenda, but I still like a little bit of sweet and honey because my allergies are bothering me and it's honey's good for you when you have a bad throat. So I see. So you'd say you're pretty health conscientious for the most part. I try to be. No, I'm not the road to hell is paved with good intentions, so they say, but I try. Yes, of course. So, you know, as I look through this office, the one thing I've noticed, especially up on the uh, on the wall that's right next to me, we see all these diplomas, most of them coming from a certain university that I think I went to at one point. Did you? Yes. So you are Drexel bred. I am. And you end up coming back to Drexel for... I, I am. There's there's a, a long history with Drexel and I. Mm-hmm. So I actually, when I was younger, used to um, play basketball when I was 
in grade school. And one of my best friends, her dad would always take us to different college games. And there was a particular game that we went to that was Drexel and St. Joe's. And I was fascinated for some reason with Drexel. There was something about it that just caught my attention. And then ever since then, I, I always wanted to go to Drexel. So freshman year, I came in. I was a, my major at the time was commerce and engineering, which is now business and engineering. Didn't do so hot my first year. Ended up working at Disney World the summer after that. Came back to Drexel for two days and realized that it wasn't what I wanted to be back in Florida. So left Drexel, did my Florida thing, came back, came back to Drexel, changed it to architectural engineering. That didn't work out. Finished my bachelor someplace else. And then when I went to do my master's, they had the program I wanted. I ended up getting my master's here, got a job here, then got my doctorate here. Then So it's just Drexel's kind of been in my blood, I guess. Um, I keep coming back. and uh, Somehow, some way. Yeah. And I also am Catholic and St. Catherine Drexel is A.J. Drexel's niece. So, And I live close to Drexel Hill, which was named for A.J. Drexel. So there's just a whole lot of history there too, yeah, um, which I find like, local history that I found fascinating. You've obviously had a very interesting life and definitely just with this whole explanation of how you end up coming back to Drexel it's pretty it's pretty intricate I'll just say that right there but let's go back all those many years to um you were born here in Philadelphia if I remember correctly I was born um right outside of Philadelphia in one of the suburbs so what was it like growing up in that environment especially at that time well I mean it wasn't millions of years ago but you know it was it was fun you know I went to Catholic grade school I you know I very much was just in the suburbs, you know, came down into the city once in a while if we had an event or something. But, you know, most of the time we were just in the local the local area. My parents, my dad grew up in the, the town where I am. He went to the same school that my kids go to now. So, you know, it's pretty typical. My parents have been married forever, it feels like, and I have two sisters, just kind of, you know. So pretty standard childhood. Yeah, not, not nothing, you know, I have a super close Instead of my big fat Greek wedding, it would be my big fat Italian wedding type family, but uh, Italian slash Jewish. But yeah, but that's that's about it. I mean, so pretty pretty standard. Mm-hmm. All right. When you were growing up in the suburbs, though, did anything in terms of autism? How did that relate to you back then? So what was interesting? I not so much autism, but I personally have social anxiety disorder. And when I was in high school, it was it was debilitating. And then when I came to Drexel, it was very, I felt lost. I felt like there wasn't really one person that I could go to and talk to. I had an academic advisor, but I didn't feel a connection like I could walk in at any time and just ask questions. So I always felt like that as a student. And then as I got older and got married, we I have a son who is now 23 who is also on the spectrum, uh, who is on the spectrum, which kind of led me into um, the path that I'm in now, um, which I love. I love working with college students who are on the spectrum. So I see. So how was your education like at um, you know, an early age? Were you a good student? I was. Um, things kind of came easy to me. I never had to study, really. And I'm not just saying that. I just, you know, I would sit and I found out later in life that I had ADHD. So really I was daydreaming in class often, but I still was getting A's because I understood the information. So I never really had a hard time with that. So you mentioned earlier that you had, a, <laughs> that you have social anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. When did you find out about that? Um, I guess in my early 20s is when they, they kind of said, you know, that I had anxiety. And then looking back in some of my experiences in high school, I realized that it was 
it was social anxiety that was really um, the issue because I had no, I didn't know how to communicate with peers um, and I wasn't sure how to react to certain situations and that kind of thing. So in your ADHD, when did you find out about that? Uh, when I was 40. I see. And I'm 43 now. So so not too long ago. Yeah. yeah. So going into college, um, at Drexel University, if I remember correctly, when you started mm-hmm. out, you know, you are, you know, I think at that point, were you aware of your social anxiety disorder? No, actually. No. I just thought, I thought I was just different. I, yeah. Did life change for you much after you found out about the SAD? Yeah. Um, it was kind of eye-opening um, to figure out why things were happening. Um, but I also think as I got older and learned more about myself and matured more, um, that helped with it as well. What made you decide to, um, to essentially study autism? What made you decide to do that? So when uh, our son was little, I took him to a developmental pediatrician when he was about three, I guess three, three and a half. And I said, you know, he's got all these behaviors and they're kind of autistic-like. You know, he's, he's watching fans spin and he's watching wheels spin and he's watching water and he's um, lining his cars up and he's not playing with people. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. He's too high-functioning for autism. That's not because he was speaking and he was meeting his, most of his developmental milestones. So I started doing my own research then and just kept doing it. And then when he was a teenager... I said, I started to look into things for college and there wasn't anything available. So, Did you have your PhD at the time? I did not. So so remind me, your PhD is in what what exactly? So I actually have an EDD. It's in uh, Educational Leadership and Management. And my dissertation was on support services and leadership um, in support services for students on the autism spectrum in college. So I looked at different disability resource offices um, I did a case study between Penn State and Drexel. And what did you find in terms of that? <laughs> there's not much out there. Um, currently, there's about 68 to 72 programs out there that provide assistance for students. However, the information is not being disseminated to parents or to college students very well. And then on top of that, now you know we're finding that, uh, well, in the study, I found that disability resources offices were providing as much assistance as they could, but they're, they were becoming very overburdened because so many students are coming in with accommodations that they couldn't do anything extra that possibly a support program could do. I see. And when you came into Drexel, you didn't start off at DAS. You started, if I remember correctly, at uh, the Office of Equality and Diversity, if I remember correctly. No, no. it wasn't there? No, I actually started, um, and this was years ago, because the Goodwin College had a bunch of different programs in it. Um, I was the program manager for computing and security technology. Really? So my undergrad was in information technology in business. So I was an IT person hmm. and uh, ended up getting my master's in higher, uh, where did I get my master's in? Uh, the science of instruction <laughs> with a concentration in secondary math because I had so many math courses from the engineering that mm. I took. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to teach high school math. So I thought, oh, good, I'll have my summers off. Well, that never happened. So I ended up being a program manager in computing and security technology. Um, and then when the doctorate became available, the doctorate in education, I thought, oh, good. Now I could be faculty, have my summers off, and I'll get the fun hat at graduation. Well, I still haven't gotten 
my summers off, but I got the fun hat at graduation, so that was good. Would you say having your son being diagnosed on the spectrum really put your life into focus? It did. It it really did. Um, you know, sometimes I have four kids and he's the oldest, so sometimes I say he broke me <laughs> um, for the other th- for the other three because when after as a parent as you've been through that anything else um, is kind of small change. Um, so you kind of let the other three get away with a little bit more, but, um, it definitely was challenging as he was growing up because there were things that, uh, you would do with him, you had to do with him. You couldn't do with a typical child. Um, you, like if we put him in timeout, you know, it did nothing because he could sit there and entertain himself by studying how his fingers were moving or, um, so we had to think of creative ways to, you know, and he worked better with positive reinforcement than negative. So we really had to look at different things to, to help him along. So. What's the biggest lesson you've learned as a mother? Because you've had a very interesting time. I, I know from my experience with you, I mean, I don't, I think it's okay to say this. Um, you are technically a single mother at this point. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what's been the biggest lesson you've learned from that? Um, from being a single mother or just from being a mother? Either one. Um, I think it's all about choosing your battles and giving independence to your kids. You know, I, I see a lot of students that come in and are still leaning on their parents and their parents are just so afraid to let go because they're afraid that their their students are going to fall flat or fail or but you know, no one learns no one learns from being successful all the time. They learn from their failures and they learn from mistakes. Mm-hmm. So um, parents sometimes are almost doing a disservice to their students. I mean, and not, you know, no parent is perfect. Um, And I definitely am not in any way, shape, or form a perfect parent. Um, I'm just telling you some of the observations that I've seen and things I've learned. It's just to pick and choose your battles and, you know, allow natural consequences to happen if they happen. Your student didn't turn their paper in on time. That's on them. They're going to learn that the teacher's not going to like it if they fail. So. Yeah. So I notice right now that as we do the interview, you're, um, you're drawing a little bit, mm-hmm. or at least you're coloring. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's sort of a, a concentration technique because of your ADHD? It's, yes. Um, it's because it's, I'm ADHD and I need something else to focus on while we're talking. Of course. Um, it's also part of the social anxiety that I don't want to just... I want something else to concentrate on, so I'm not worried about what I'm saying. No, of course. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to call you out on it. Right? No, it's all good. Yeah. Because honestly, like, we, we had Ariel Kamen, who I know you're very familiar with, on the program. And mm-hmm. while we were doing the interview, she'd be sketching out things to try to explain it to me. You know, like... Oh, okay. Yeah. So this isn't the first time this has happened. It's just, you know, one of the first times that I can point that out because, well, we at least have a basis to connect it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a researcher over in... Uh, once I finished my doctorate, I went from computing and security technology over to the Autism Institute and became a researcher, um, a research associate, and worked under Dr. Paul Shattuck. Um, and I helped him develop a few programs over there for people who were graduating from high school and were not college-bound, um, but still were looking for employment and needed help connecting services. So we developed a couple of programs, and after a little while, I said, you know, I said, this is great. I love what I'm doing. I said, but I'd really like to work with college students. Mm-hmm. So about two and a half years ago, I came over to DASP. I remember and that. And kind of 
rebooted it. Mm, I remember. It's been going strong ever since. Yes, it so. has. So you took over for Dr. Uh, Gerard Huffling, and I remember that mm-hmm. very well because he was my original um, director when I came into the program back in 2016. Yep. And, you know, there was a lot of drama behind it from what I remember. Like, like apparently we'd heard that he, like, he had resigned because he was being pushed around, and he would come in his place, and it was just... It was a complete mess at oh, that geez. point, at least from what we had heard. And I remember when we first met, you know, we had a we had a discussion. Yes. You, know? you were you were very intimidating, I have to be honest. Oh wow. Because it was like I was being screened. Yeah. And you kinda you were kinda like, Yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know about this. I have to I have to get to know you first and I was I was interviewed. You basically interviewed me. Just sort of in the way we're doing now. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully are you are you intimidated right now? No. All right, that's good. That's good. I I think I I have a feeling I passed the test, but I'm not sure. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's not really a test. It's just I wanted to understand because, like, in the end, you're going to be the director of the program. Yeah. I'll have to come to you directly. So if I have a conversation with you, I want to at least know that not only you understand what I'm saying, but you know what we're saying would be in confidence, that type of thing, and you at least understand why I would have these trust issues. But anyway. Yeah, and um, as far as uh. Jared goes. I um I <clears throat> I liked Jared. Um, he was a great person. I would go and talk to him often. His uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened there. To be honest, um, but it just it's just how it worked out. I guess I don't know. So when you know when you were called in, like how exactly did that work? Like was it like an application process or was it like? You there, were the first choice. No, there was an application process. I had to apply, um, just like any other position, and um, you know there were other applicants, and they did interviews, and just like any other position. What was your angle in terms of getting in as the director? My angle? Yeah, because like everyone um, has a different reason. Everyone has a different sort of perspective, like oh, why I would make a great director, that type of thing. Well, I mean, I think I had the I had a couple different viewpoints. Um, one, I suffered from social anxiety. I still suffer from social anxiety myself. Um, two, I'm a parent on with a student on the spectrum, so I understood that. And three, I had the research perspective as well, um, so the data behind it. I also had the degree, um, the doctorate in educational leadership and management, which helps me to create a plan for the program um, and I had some ideas and, and things to kind of um, grow the program, retain students, that kind of thing. For you, anyway, because you've worked now with both DASP and with AJ Drexel, mm-hmm. what's been the main difference between the two in your eyes? Um, it's two completely different animals, to be honest. The, the AJ Drexel Autism Institute is a public health research institute. They're focused on research um, and kind of moving and life course outcomes specifically on moving the needle for people who are aging out of the system. Um, I am kind of applying some of that research in working with college students and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of two different, two different things where we're a support service under student life. Um, and they're a research institute under the provost office. So... Yeah. Kind of two different things, but we do we do collaborate a lot. Yeah, but in terms of your experience with both, um, is there any difference? Um, well, the difference for me personally 
Um, when I was over there, I spent a lot of time um, doing research, just doing research. Um, whereas over here, I see people constantly. I constantly have appointments. I constantly, you know, I have to follow more of the the academic calendar. Whereas over there, they're not really concerned so much with the academic calendar. Mm, I see. So, yeah, we're living in a very interesting time for people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, I think more than ever, more people are starting to not only understand the spectrum, but also are starting to realize, like, hey, this is this is increasingly becoming almost like the new normal if there is really such a thing. You know, I mean, we have program, we have like shows on television, like The Good Doctor, Atypical, you know, The A Word, all which focus on, you know, on the autism spectrum and autism rights. I mean, Freddie Highmore could potentially become an Emmy winner next year just based on his performance on The Good Doctor alone. However, there's also a lot of people who really don't want to disclose the fact mm -hmm. that they are on the, um, on the spectrum. Why do you think that's the case? Um... I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think it's all in how their own personal experience has been. Um, you know, I know some people as they as they grew up and went through school, they were always labeled as the the kid with autism, or um, you know, they always had to be taken out of class for different uh, therapies or things like that. Um, when they get to college, they don't want to be that different kid anymore. They just want to be the college kid, not the college kid with autism. Um, and then I have other students who, you know, say, yeah, you know, I have autism, but it's not all of me. It's a part of me. It just makes me who I am. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, you know, kind of their own experience. And I think they have to come to terms with it in their own way. Do you think it's more beneficial for students to open up about it than to keep it closed? Yes. Um, and uh, I say that because, one, it took me a really long time to tell anyone that I had social anxiety disorder or um, ADHD. Um, and not because I was ashamed of it. It's just because there was a stigma that you didn't talk about things, um, whereas now it's more acceptable. Um, what was the original question? Um, like, is it like, do you think it's more beneficial for? Right. Yes, I do. Um, I do think it's more beneficial because whether you tell people or not, it's still going to be there. So you kind of have an advantage if you do tell them. Um, it kind of gives, not that you're, you know, you're, you're telling them, you know, that this is a part of me. I may act in certain different ways. I may ask a lot of questions, um, but this is me. And you know, if you don't like it, that's your problem. That's not my problem kind of thing. Um, so. So you're coming up right now almost on your third year at DASP, you know, as the director. Of wow. DASP. Almost, yeah. almost your third year. Yeah. So in the next five years, where do you see DASP going? That's a really good question. Um, and I have been pondering that because we've, We've grown from um, 15 students when you were one of the original 15 um, to about 65 now. So um, I do see probably more staff coming on. Um, I see um, uh, reaching out to more, um, <clears throat> excuse me, more campus communities, um, 
working in collaboration with all different campus uh, departments. Um, you know, I think neurodiversity is is becoming more the word than just autism, um, because there's a lot of students that aren't even diagnosed that you know can come and use a service as a DASP. They don't have to have a diagnosis. Um, so I think in the next five years, you know, I think it's going to grow. I think we're going to be able to offer more supports. Um, we may be charging in the future, but I'm, I'm looking into ways to offset that cost so that it doesn't really hit parents or students um, too hard. Because support should not cost money, just be based on, oh, I get that. You're I right. agree. Yeah. I agree. You're absolutely right. Hmm. So in terms of uh, DASP, and I know we didn't really touch up much on this, but let's touch up on it now. In terms of the programs it offers, um, why would DASP be a good route for students who are on the spectrum or not on the spectrum or just simply want to learn? So I think as far as the programs go across the nation, um, we're one of the only ones that doesn't charge right now. Um, so we have that in our favor. I don't know for how much longer because we are growing so rapidly and because there are so many students coming in with IEPs and 504 plans. But um, I think, you know, every program has something different to offer across the United States. Um, if you go to collegeautismspectrum.com, you can, you can see a pretty comprehensive list of, of programs that are out there. Um, we kind of take it from a... Um, you know, students, these students are adults. Um, DASP is more of a, a, a fading support, so to speak, rather than someone that's going to hold your hand throughout the entire time you're here. So, um, you know, in the beginning, we're very, it's very intensive with freshmen. Um, we meet one-on-one -on -one because it's a big transition from high school to college. And then it kind of fades. Um, we kind of give them the tools, you know, communication to professors doesn't come from us, it comes from the student. Um, we're happy to walk them through how to have that communication, but we don't, we don't um, enable students. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I also allow them to, you know, I, I had a, a freshman who failed um, his English course. Okay, you failed your English course, so now what do we do? And just kind of learn through some of these things. Um, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world to get a B. You know, it's kind of, I'm just kind of there to connect the dots, help them find the resources on campus. Um, but we don't hold hands. So throughout your entire life, your entire career, what do you see as the secret to your own personal success? Um, it's not money as much as I thought it was. 20 some years ago that if I had, if I got a job that made more money, I'd be happy. Um, I think success is within. I think it's learning to enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy, you know, I love to come to work every day. You know, people say they don't like Mondays. I tell people I actually love Mondays. Um, believe it or not. Um, because I just, I like coming to work. I like to get to see my students and see, you know, the great things that they're doing or, you know, helping them if they need help. Um, and that really, to me, is success. Um, and watching them graduate and probably make, you know, four times what I'm making. But I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, like, 
that's that's successful to me um is to see is is to be happy within myself first off and be happy with who I am but also to come to work every day and and see these students be successful my thanks to Dr. Everett for taking the time to talk doc if you're listening it's been a genuine honor and a thrill to have been a part of the program for the time that I was there as the old guard steps out the new guard steps in so, to Dr. Edwards, the DASP team, and incoming NeuroDragons eboard, I wish you nothing but the best. In the meantime, all of you can follow this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Last Call Armon. That's Last Call A R M O N, no spaces. You can also follow the Triangle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Drexel Triangle for more Triangle and Tripod content, as well as articles regarding the whole spectrum of Drexel information from news to entertainment. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Last Call on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and visit our website, www.thetriangle.org slash podcasts for more Last Call content. My thanks to composer Philip Chance for his work on the Last Call theme, as well as the Tripod and Triangle team for their support. I hope everyone has a pleasant week. We hope you join us and answer the call. And until week seven, the bar is closed. To listen to more Tripod Productions, go to thetriangle.org slash podcasts.